The Midnight Myth Podcast presents The Wheel of Ka, an exploration into Stephen King's epic The Dark Tower. This podcast is dedicated to discussion and analysis of The Dark Tower, a seven-book series written by the prolific American story-slinger Stephen King. Say thank you, Cy. Episode 1, Thoughts on The Dark Tower 1, The Gunslinger. The man in black fled across the desert, and the gunslinger followed. The desert was the apotheosis of all deserts, huge, standing in the sky for what looked like eternity in all directions. It was white and blinding and waterless and without feature, save for the faint, cloudy haze of the mountains which sketched themselves on the horizon and the devil grass which brought sweet dreams, nightmares, death. An occasional tombstone sign pointed the way, for once the drifted track that cut its way through the thick crust of alkali had been a highway. Coaches and buckas had followed it. The world had moved on since then. The world had emptied. Well, this is a different and new project for the Midnight Myth Podcast. This is not a standard, regular Derek and Laurel episode that you Midnight Myth listeners have come to know and love. We are doing a deep dive into one of my favorite book series, Stephen King's The Dark Tower. This is The Dark Tower, episode one, about book one, The Gunslinger. And even more amazing and super exciting that I am going to announce our first ever guest podcast co-host, my man, Steve. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Yeah. This is incredibly exciting and absolutely terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a microphone that we're recording into for the internet for all time. Right. That will never go away. Right. You know, no pressure. That's fine. Yeah. That's fine. In fact, I feel more comfortable in front of a microphone. So I've I've spent a lot of time in front of one, but never in the medium of a podcast. Yeah. So I'm excited. This is awesome. So this is your first ever podcast recording session uh, it's the second one okay. actually but but the first one was an interview in a band for gotcha. a podcast but other, but this is the first like episode i've ever recorded gotcha yeah well let me give a little breakdown so for the midnight myth listeners who are fans of laurel i do apologize we all admit she's the best part of the regular midnight myth oh, podcast without a doubt yeah clearly other than the boomerangs in which i'm the best part but barring that <sighs> Laurel, yeah, I know, right? right off the bat, I know, right? It gets it gets, it gets rough in here. <laughs> so Laurel will not be the co-host of this sort of uh, side project, if you will, of the Midnight Myth. This uh, I'll give everyone how I came to the Dark Tower, and actually, why don't we do this, Steve? Give us a biography, mm-hmm. hit us up, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then after that, I think maybe. I'll I'll talk about how I came to the Dark Tower, what it means to me. Sure. And then we'll jump right into book one. Sounds good? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. What's the bio, brother? Well, so to start off, I am Derek and Laurel's neighbor. We live directly next to each other, uh, my wife and I, Rebecca. Uh, And I am an actor and a musician in the city. Uh, I grew up in Delaware County, right outside of Philadelphia, and I just bought a house six months ago, obviously. That's how we're neighbors. Um, but I am originally from the area, was born and raised, and now back living in Philadelphia. Um, yeah, so I spent a lot of time as a singer and a drummer the last 20 years of my life, uh, and uh, also as an actor. I went to school at UArts down in Center City, and that's kind of how I know Laurel, is through the theater community in, in a roundabout way. So 
I spent a lot of time recording music in and out of Philadelphia and playing gigs in and out of Philadelphia. And uh, and was lucky enough. That's actually how we first connected, Derek, you and I, was me uh, Facebook stalking you and saying, <laughs> hey, I'm going to be your neighbor. And oh, my God, you're a fucking drummer. That's crazy. So yeah, that's just a little bit about me. So and and I'm a natural talker, and I and I love storytelling, and I really gravitated towards the midnight myth, and and listened to it, and I'm a huge advocate of it. And so was was lucky enough to find a story that interests both of us. And so and so here we are. And uh, right on. And you know, and I'll say I'll just give my quick uh, dark tower. Please. How I got into it. Yeah, because please I'm, do. I'm obsessed with this story. Uh, a good buddy of mine, Tim. Uh, who who I met in college through my roommate Bob, uh, who also read this, really was the one that said, you know, you should give this series a try. Uh, as as a person that loves really deep, rich storytelling, also who loves Dungeons and Dragons and always makes loner really, you know, you know, moody characters. He said you would really connect to Roland, and I immediately did. And and he and I would talk about each of the books. Uh, and then I got a few other friends, very close friends, into reading it, uh, and and just fell in love with the entire story. It's it's goods, it's bads, the ups and downs. I mean, I I, I love all of it. And so, uh, and then I found out that you read the book series, of course. Another thing that we were able to connect on. Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, uh, it's kind of the the birth of this side project yeah. was. I was reading the books for the first time. I say reading. I was actually listening to them on Audible. Um, Audible, if you want to sponsor this, that'd be awesome. Please. Um, but I was listening to them on Audible, and you being my neighbor and friend were another just huge Dark Tower fan, so I was bouncing my experience off of you when we were hanging out. Right. And it became clear to me that, A, I did want to bring it to the Midnight Myth, and I did want to discuss it, and B, being that Laurel is not uh, a fan and is not reading it, right. we would need to bring in another host because no one just wants to hear me. You know? <laughs> so it started out as a uh, just we're going to do a episode, special episode about all seven books. Right. And right. then we decided that's, that that's stupid. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. That's an insane amount of work. And impossible. So what we're doing is, and readers, we would love if you come, our listeners, pardon me, we would love if you come on this journey with us. Mm-hmm. We just finished book one, The Gunslinger. We are going to then reread book two. Now, I'm not doing this reread through Audible. I actually bought the books and I'm reading it. Right. So I've done a listen and now I'm doing a read. And we're going to discuss each book at the end of them. Um, and we're going to discuss each book as a, as a isolated piece of work. Right, right. And then build thematically to the, the epic conclusion. Right. It is a seven-book series. It's, it's a long. It's a beast. It is. It is a mammoth project. I came to the Dark Tower um, a very zigzaggy, like non-direct way. Mm-hmm. People had been recommending it to me for years. And I'll... You know, be honest, I've just never been a Stephen King fan. Ah. Never an anti-Stephen King. Right, right. But, you know, I'd read a Stephen King book here or there and be like, oh, that was okay. And I'm like, you know, a seven-book series seems like a huge commitment from an author I'm not super jazzed about. Mm. And honestly, you know, kind of eh, didn't think too highly of. And man, was I wrong. And as soon as I uh, finished the book one of The Gunslinger, I became obsessed. Mm-hmm. And it has been one of the great joys of my adult life to interact with this piece of art and discussing it is going to be tons of fun. Yeah. Because be great. 
you know, you can't just passively enjoy art. You have to actively enjoy it. And the way I actively enjoy art is I podcast about it. Mm. And to the the mission of the Midnight Myth is to understand universal themes throughout storytelling that intersect between history, philosophy, pop culture, um, and mythology. And man, does Stephen King really hit that intersection. He hits all of it in the first book. Absolutely. I mean, let alone the seven book series. He hits all of it in the first, what's it, 250 pages? I mean, that's... yep. From Hey Jude references to the man Jesus. To Amico. Amico has a reference. To uh, to the Oracle and all things that we're going to get into. So I'm excited for this palaver, if it please you. Uh, it does please me, sir. Thank you, Cy. Ah, thank you, Cy. Let's get into it. Let's talk book one. So my first question for you, mm-hmm. having you just now reread it, does book one hold up to you? I think even more the second time. And... Yes. Yes. Let me first say, yes, it does. And even more the second time, because it's sort of like when you go back and you rewatch a movie, you know, you know, you find all the Easter eggs, you see all the things that you missed, you pick up all the the little nuances. And Stephen King has an uncanny ability to go back, reference things. I mean, this book series is 35 years long. It took him 35 years to complete the entire series. And The Gunslinger is his first book that he wrote theoretically when he was like 18 in college. He just wrote the first piece, The Gunslinger, uh, off a whim. And and you can tell. It's very raw. It's very rough. It's, it's, it's pretty dark for an 18-year-old you know, author to jump into. And I think it holds up even more because... It reminds me why I fell in love with the book series in the first place. Uh, it's wild. It's all over the place. Uh, there, there are times when, you know, we'll t- I'm, we're going to talk a lot, I'm sure, about alternate dimensions. But you really feel the pull of alternate dimensions through this first book. And what he's able to do in 250 pages is, is pretty immense. And it's a lot to take in. But So all of that to say, yes. It does hold up. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Um, I do agree. It, you know, rereading it, it reminded me why I love the series. Mm-hmm. The idea that sometimes genres can be static. What I mean by that is, you know, if you're going to do a fantasy, you're going to have a group of individuals who are going to be on a quest. They're going to hit the standard obstacles, maybe fight a dragon, maybe fight something undead. And you can do a lot in that genre, which is great. Sometimes when you do a Western, it's going to be about a lone man out on the prairie who's not really good, but not really bad, who push comes to shove, will do the right thing, but has no problem murdering someone and sleeping at night. <laughs> and that can be really great. That can be really cool. That's, there's a reason these genres work and these genres exist. What Stephen King does is he takes a sledgehammer to the conventions of fantasy and the conventions of Western. He decides that he is not going to live by those whatsoever, and he's not going to be beholden to it. And a lot of times, you know, the imagery, take a sledgehammer, it sounds violent, but he does it with respect. Sure. He knows that he's living under the the, the weight of a Tolkien and a Western mm-hmm. combined into one. He knows that this is, is not something that's normal, and he handles it, and he handles it with deafness. The other thing that I found surprised rereading the book one is how little actually happens in it. 
most of the action is told through the characters telling stories, uh, either stories of the past or at the last chapter, a very long philosophical right. treatise on the right. notion of size and the, the place of the galaxy. Right. Very little actually happens to Roland in the timeline that he is in. It's essentially he goes, he talks to a man and a bird. Mm-hmm. He walks across a desert. He gets some water at a way station. He, you know, fucks an oracle. Right, right. I mean, there is there is the one, Tull is the one place where that gets interrupted. Right. Right, I mean, it's the first time that we see that Roland is really a brutal killer. And what he's able to do and, and what what kind of power he holds as a gunslinger. And that's, that's I think, the, the only time I would agree. And, then, and until we get to, you know, that conversation later on with Walter, you're right. Not much. It's a lot of traveling. Not very much happens. No. But it's still so freaking compelling. <laughs> it's near plotless. And it's, I think it's an interesting that in each chapter, there is a side story within the story. Whether that's him meeting the the bird Zoltan and that that I forget the the, the man's name, then he tells the story of Tull. Brown. Brown Brown right, and then he tells the story of Tull and Alice and the Man in Black resurrecting someone, um, and then his murder of everybody in the town. Yeah. Then there's him and Jake, and him and Jake. There's not. Is there, I'm trying to remember if they take a little narrative trip into the past. They do because him and Jake, he tells the story right. of his coming of age right. when they're under the tunnel. Jake also recalls his childhood and what he can remember of his father and his mother to Roland. Right. Vis-a-vis hypnotism. Right. And then the man in black and him have a conversation in which they go all over the fucking cosmos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 it, and you don't, to me, at least there are times in that conversation where in my mind, I saw we're just switching dimensions at whichever way it, it never right. feels safe. It never feels grounded. And, and that's why I think uh, it's a really interesting place that King puts us later on and allows the reader to imagine a lot of these things. I mean, and that's also, I think part of the reason why there's not a whole lot of action. Sure. King leads a lot up to leaves, excuse me, a lot up to the reader to figure out in your mind, did that happen? Did it not happen? How did it happen? Right. He doesn't fill right. in those blanks for you, which is which makes Roland such an interesting character as we continue on because you have to fill in blanks about Roland for in each part of this book. Totally. And if we think of one of the guiding sort of philosophical tools of the Midnight Myth is Joseph Campbell and his hero's journey. I am a lover of Joseph Campbell's work. We all are. Yeah, Without unreal. Joseph Campbell, we wouldn't have a little man named George Lucas and you know, that, can that I, small can I be thing, honest? Star Wars. Right, right. Yeah. Can I be honest? Every time I hear Joseph Campbell talk, I, I start to cry. Like I watch his old his his old lectures. I'm just the man's brilliant. I'm sorry. That's a little tangent about Joseph Campbell. You know what? I thought that was wonderful. So thank you for sharing. Um, yeah. But this book does not at all conform to the conventions of the traditional hero's journey in any way, shape, or form. It sets the groundwork for a completely new and unique Western, post-apocalyptic interdimensional multiverse fantasy epic. And those words have never been melded together. So for that alone, King deserves worthy praise. Absolutely. Just for the ambition in this book, for breaking the conventions and still making it enjoyable. Because a lot of times when something really breaks the rules, 
Think of, um, there are moments, uh, I love the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, sure. And there's moments where that movie's boring. Let's yeah, all be honest. Absolutely. Because it's breaking all the rules and sometimes it's a little pretentious and I love it. Right. Gunslinger is fucking entertaining. Yeah, the whole time. Just so like consuming, like so easy and fun to read. Right. And still breaking everything that you like about the genres that it's placed mm-hmm. in. And I think that's truly, truly amazing. And I, it's, you know, this book is is really an anomaly to me of, of all of them because it's the loosest, if that makes sense. I mean, plot-wise, you know, as we move forward, there's a clear plot that starts to happen. But this is the first time where King, you get a real glimpse into a young 18-year-old, limitless Stephen King. I mean, can we talk for a second about this man in this book, Roland Deshane of Gilead, of the line of Eld, Kills 55 people. Women men, and children. Women and children. In a span of 20 minutes. With no problem. And morality comes to mind for me. as a big theme for me in this book. Especially with Roland. And the lack of morality. And I think that also goes against Joseph Campbell's theory. I couldn't agree more. I think... We are seeing a character who doesn't fundamentally change, but is wrestling with morality in a world that has moved on. Mm -hmm. Um, The easiest way to call a world that's moved on, I get the sense that we're dealing with post-nuclear war. That's what happened to InWorld, right? That's why we have glowing rocks. We have mutated children and animals and things like that. That's what killed all the crops. That's why the desert isn't, it's not Arabia, it's just flat, nothing, nuclear waste is the way that I envisioned it. Sure. So we're dealing with a world that has ended, and we're dealing with the last night. Yeah, the last gunslinger. Right, and the gunslingers to me as an organization, the reason that they are the line of Arthur Eld is hearkening to King Arthur. Mm -hmm. And King Arthur established the, the code of ethics of knights that were supposed to act in a chivalrous way. Mm-hmm. And Roland, as the last, is wrestling with what does it mean to be a killer without a war, without a country, without a nation, and without a code. Right. And he's he's so oddly he's so oddly immorally moral, if that makes any sense at all. Like he just there there are morals to Roland. There are things that he believes in. He believes in his ever longing quest for the tower. All right. So I'm glad that you brought that up because I am right with you. So uh, Roland in his quest for the tower is a quest in which he has self isolated himself. That's the stupidest way to say that ever, but you get my drift. I'd like to give you a quote, right? And this is from chapter one. He had the guns, his father gun, his father's guns, part of me. And surely they were more important than horns or even friends, weren't they? Mm. And to me, that's the central thesis of book one. Sure. The tower is more important to him than anything, anything. else. Even the, the last remnants of the, his code. We don't know why he is pursuing the tower, but we know he's pursuing the man in black to pursue the tower. That the man in black is his first stop on a larger quest. They mention so many times in chapter three that this is, the end of the beginning that it's not the end of the story, but the end of the beginning that we're seeing the first 
phase of his quest. And we see a man who is alone, who is willing to murder innocent children if he has to, to get to his tower. And even more insidious, he's willing to let someone he loves die for the tower. Several people. Yeah. Several people. Because even up to this point, he's lost many, many people in this quest. And they hearken back. I mean, one of the things I love about King is he talks about Cuthbert and Elaine and Susan Delgado right in this book. And I won't get into who they are uh, because that's that comes later. But the fact that he can hearken back to those characters and make us feel like they're real already. They're a part of... And we know, we find out that Roland lost all three of them. It's It's all over this book. And then we get to Jake. His, I, I, I think, his ultimate sacrifice, even more than Susan. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jake is innocent. Jake is only there because of the man in black. Jake is smart and intuitive. Mm-hmm. Jake has the makings of a gunslinger. Jake is also dependent on Roland to survive. Jake also helps Roland and doesn't kill Roland when he has the opportunity to. So in Jake, we see the ultimate trap that the man in black put in front of him, that Jake would have to die for Roland to get his palather with the man in black to end the beginning of the quest. And the quote that I read that ends with, you know, weren't they? The guns, weren't they more important? It's not definitive. It is not set in stone that the person that we see Roland right now, who's willing to let Jake die for the quest That is his flaw. That is the thing that's standing in his way. He has to learn to to become a true gunslinger and a true weapon of light again. And I think think that this world has lost its way, so has Roland. And Roland has to live with the fact that he has done these terrible things. And he has to, he has to learn to put the tower second to human life. Even on and even on the great quests that we have, there are things that if you sacrifice and lose, you can't come back from. And we're at that point where Roland is in his deepest despair, mm-hmm. where he values his guns more than horns or friends. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the central thesis of the main character in book one, in my view. Mm-hmm. And that is the impediment that he's going to need to overcome on this journey. Right. It ends with him doing something fucking monstrous. After after already done monstrous things, you know. Yeah, and, he, and there and, are other worlds than these. And right, and the craziest part about it is that when Roland he finds out very early on that he's going to sacrifice Jake, and he's able to just swallow the pain and the hurt that comes with that, and realizing that, you know. Again, he's done this over and over and over and over again. You know, the wheel of Ka continues to turn, and this is one more cog in that wheel of of Roland for however long he's been doing this. Thousands of years, millennia. That's also something that's not defined. You know, I think they say at one point in time he's been doing this for a thousand years, but they're also, you know, it's kind of nebulous. It's all over the place. And so... The fact that Roland will continue to make the choice to sacrifice Jake up until until this point once, 
knowing full well. I mean, Jake Jake becomes so bitter and angry with Roland in the middle of that. Every conversation, he's 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 very passive aggressive. Again, one thing we didn't mention: Jake is is ten years old, nine, ten years old. He's a child who came from a prep school in Manhattan, whose parents were very wealthy and very detached. You know, I mean, this kid comes from privilege all over the place, but he's a kid. He's 10 years old. He wakes up in a way station in the middle of a post-apocalyptic nuclear waste. Like, dude, this kid has been through some fucked up shit so far. And then all of a sudden, he finds this man who he can immediately connect to as a father figure. And Roland can immediately connect to as a son. It's kind of wild, that moment when Roland realizes again for the thousandth time that he loves this child unconditionally well except for one that he loves the tower more much much more yep and that is the tragedy i'd like to read if you will permit me Mm -hmm. um in that same vein a quote this is from chapter three that i thought really nailed into the gunslinger's quest for the tower as uh, itself a bad thing, mm. right? As the thing that is ultimately what the, the, the niche he needs to overcome. The gunslinger felt a great and unholy thirst in some deep unknown pit of his body, and no one draft of water or wine could touch. Worlds trembled almost within the reach of his fingers, and in some instinctual way he strove not to be corrupted, knowing in his colder mind that such strife was vain and always will be. In the end, there was only Ka. So I think it's worth talking about Ka. Sure, certainly. Ka to me represents the forces of fate. Mm-hmm. It is not, from what I can tell or gather, a like entrenched ideology. It's not an orthodoxy. It's not a scripture. It's not a thing to be worshipped. Mm-hmm. But there is the presence of Ka all around the gunslinger. The idea that there is some fate that we all play and that in that place we all must be and we all must remain. I think my question is, in this book, Roland seems to have choice, right? He seems to have free will. He chooses to kill all of the citizens of Tull. He chooses to follow the man in black and not save Jake and let Jake fall to his death. It seems like he has agency. He chooses to, or Jake, he allows Jake the choice between remembering the world when he's being hypnotized or forgetting it. And Jake chooses to forget. So it seems like there is choice. Is that a contradiction to Ka? Because if Ka is the, the predestination, can it be said that you are free in a world where it's always up to Ka? And I wonder how that manifests in the book. Is there a contradiction there at the, at the nexus where multiverses collide? There is on, and only ever is there and will there be is Ka. And we can all only do Ka. However, Roland seems to be free. Well, it seems that he's free, except we do have references in the book that he has done this exact journey multiple times, thousands of times. In the in the first book, you picked up on that. See, yeah, I there's that. Yeah, there are there are su- subtle references that he's done this over and over again. 
Mm-hmm. And I think, so to me, I, I, this, I know that it's, it's almost a contradiction in my answer is yes and no. Right. I think that Ka is something that Roland desperately holds on to because it gives him the excuse that his addiction to the tower, his addiction to the journey to get to the tower is something that is rooted in truth and is, is realistic. And to me, I don't think it is very realistic. I wouldn't choose my friends and my loved ones over my quest to the tower. And so that's, that's where I distance myself from Roland sometimes and, and say that I do think he uses cause and excuse sometimes. The gunslingers are the only faction of people that believe in Ka up until this point. Ka's not really mentioned by anybody else but Roland and anyone that was a part of Gilead. So it is a wheel. I think it's a trap. I don't think Ka is a positive thing. I, I do think that they have free will and free action to a certain degree. I think everyone else does except for Roland. Yeah. I, I think Roland is the one that is stuck in the center of the wheel. And the fact that he continues to, continues to make the same decision over and over again, to me, actually, and this is a bit of a tangent, but it, it stays on this question, if you'll permit me to, yeah, do to it. talk about yeah, it. Yeah, go there. I actually think part of the story is about that Ka is the creation of Roland's soul. Interesting. In that Ka, because really he's the only one that believes in Ka. People mention it, but it's almost like, oh, you know, that, that's an urban legend. Yeah, Ka, you know, everybody believes in Ka. He, he believes in it religiously. He believes in it blindly. And I do think that it, he's forced to stay in one of those spokes on this wheel forever until he makes the choice of Jake over the tower until he learns that what, what is important is the people that make you who you are, not your quest. It's, it's not the destination. It's the journey. That's very interesting. So that reminds me of a ancient Hindu philosophy, um, part of both Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, the idea of something called the samsara. Mm. And the samsara loosely translates to English as the cycle of life and death. The thing that we are all part of and trapped in. So if you are a Hindu philosopher, you believe that there are plenty of gods out there in the universe. And that if you sacrifice to these gods, they will actually give you material blessing. But you don't. You don't do those sacrifices because the gods themselves are trapped in samsara. They are part of of this material wheel, if you will, that we are all rolling around in. And the purpose of meditation and prayer and learning and, you know, extensive dieting, all the things that we think of in, in Hinduism is to get yourself out of the samsara Mm -hmm. to break the cycle of life and death that we are all trapped in. That's right on. That's right on. I think that's exactly what this is. And as we discuss the emergence of Ka as part of Roland's soul, as the part of him where he gets a soul, it is about him finally being able to break out of his own cycle of life and death, mm-hmm. his own samsara. And we see in book one, a character that dramatically fails at that. Right. At every turn, he right. fails. Um, Which is why I think the man, even the man in black says, this is the end of the beginning. 
And I think that end of the beginning is if Roland could could sit back and take that piece of information and learn from it and choose that this is the last time it's going to happen, he's going to learn this time. You know, and as we get through book seven, if you make that ultimate choice to go past the coda and read it and find out what happens, you 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 don't know up until that point, up until you know you've you're like me, you've read it for two and a half years and <laughs> still don't know does he make the choice or not until you get to that piece. And I think it's interesting that it takes him that long, and and, and I don't know, does he? Does he not? At yeah. this point in the first book, it's it's very clear that he doesn't. Right. That he's once again starting the wheel of Ka. I also think there is in this book a subtle reading of it that says knowledge can be a bad thing. Mm. Let me uh, flesh out where I'm yeah. coming from yeah, on please, that. Please, please. It's a thought when we go back to the town of Tull and we have the, uh, the guy who overdoses on the devil grass and dies mm-hmm. and the man in black resurrects him. And what the man in black says to Alice, who owns the uh, the tavern, is that, hey, if you say the word to him at 19, which will become very important to the story going yes, forward, yes. but if you say the word 19, you'll finally know the secret, the secret of what happens when you die. And all you have to do is just say that. And she is tormented with the idea that at any point in time, she can ask the man who is resurrected from death to get the secrets, and she's tormented by it. What does the gudslinger say? Listen, when you're counting, go right from 18 to 20. Right. Put it out of your mind. Just forget that 19 ever existed. Don't ever, ever ask him that. And then when the townspeople eventually turn on Roland and confront him, Alice is there and says, shoot me. I I know the answer. I said 19. Uh, yep, she asked. And I now, like, you have to kill me. And he does, immediately. He, absolutely. Without, without thinking. Without, without a moment hesitation. And to me, that is very symbolic of knowledge can be deadly. Knowing the truth is not always a good thing. And uh, and because she gets this knowledge, she asks for suicide via gunslinger which he is more than happy to oblige because he's like now that you've seen it you should die right right what is getting to the top of the tower if not at this point in the story if not presumably getting to the nexus of the universe to stand in the place of god and know and see all things Mm. roland's quest for the very knowledge that alice had and he he himself admits that you've got to, to, to get it out of your mind. You can't actually know these things brings about the just insane paradoxes and contradictions that, that this universe is playing within. And in so makes me wonder, maybe there's a little bit of ignorance can be bliss. I think so. I think Roland, there are a lot of comments made about Roland throughout the book series, but especially in, in this book with Court, with his his master, basically, his master teacher, that Roland is not a, 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 an intelligent person. He's not a book smart. He's not well-read. He He's, for all intents and purposes, they think he has no common sense. They think he's, you know, slow on the uptake. He just doesn't know, especially socially. He's not very socially apt. 
He's very on the nose. It's very grain of salt. But I think Roland chooses it to be that way. I think he chooses not to have that much knowledge because it's dangerous. Right. He's gotten farther on this quest being the hard-edged killer, being the one that doesn't make ties to anyone emotionally, that doesn't make any forming lasting relationships like with Allie. I mean, for all intents and purposes, he just he sleeps with her. That's what he does. He has a shelter for four or five days while he finds the man in black. He says she's lonely. She admits it. And he says, I'll fill this you know, void with your presence, which is shitty. It is terrible. It's, it's shitty. And also, he wants information. Right. And that's her price. Right. So to him, it's a business transaction. Right. And it's, it's, it's you know, there are parts, as much as I love Roland, this, these are the parts in the book where I get angry with him. I, like, why do you have to, why do you have to be so hard? Why is that exterior impenetrable? Well, as we get through to the man in black, you, at the end of the book, of the gunslinger, you see why. You see why Roland doesn't let people in. He's lost so much up until this point. Up until the end of the beginning, he's fucking lost almost everything, which is insane to think that this the first leg of the journey is over and you've lost everyone you've grown up with and known and loved ever. Yeah. To sacrifice another child. You had that moment to redeem yourself and you choose not to. And then you get to the end with, you know, this insane sorcerer who has done nothing but played mind tricks on you and fucked with you for over a thousand years. All of a sudden we see this weird glimpse of Roland having emotion and feeling and, and doubt that his quest, I mean... I, I, why do you think that is? Why do you think toward, when in that palaver with the man in black, why do you think Roland, and I'm genuinely interested in this, why Roland acquiesces to the man in black and, and shows him a bit of vulnerability in the end there? Yeah, that's a really Because he could just question. kill him. Yeah. He can just fulfill this part of it. I mean, it's why does he choose to sacrifice Jake but keep the man in black alive? That one in the wheel perplexes me. So the man in black, I think if we, if we take a, the reading that there's a conversation in this book about what knowledge is, how to gain it. We have a, a student who is not very bright, not very intelligent, a man of action, the last warrior in a civilization that has gone, that has no more wars to fight. He sits with the man in black because the man in black is going to grant and give him access to the le- the next bit of his quest. Mm-hmm. It's part mm-hmm. of him putting the quest for the tower ahead of everything else. Mm-hmm. And the man in black is going to give him what he needs on that next step. He doesn't know this intellectually. He doesn't know it in the way that I know I'm sitting in a chair right now. Mm-hmm but he intuitively senses that he must talk to the man in black in order to get himself ready for the next phase. And the man in black reiterates some prophecies that he heard from the Oracle. So the man in black confirms for him that there is a tower that he does. He is close to it and that he's going to have to 
uh, draw, go through the drawing of the three as his next phase. This is vital pieces of information that he needed and he was willing to do anything and literally anything to get it. Right. And doesn't the man in black do it through a tarot card reading? Yes. In which he adds cards of his own? Yes. To the deck? Yes. That that's another piece. Like he has the ability to add cogs in the wheel of Ka. Yep. And maybe that's another reason why Roland keeps him alive. He, he isn't necessary. And though that the man in black is a liar and the man in black is an enemy of his and a trickster and absolutely a force of chaos and not a force of good in any way, shape or form. The man in black is closer to the tower than Roland. And because the man in black is closer to the tower, we get hints that there is a red King at the tower that right. he serves. Right. We get hints that there's a bigger story there, but the man in black, you get this. I get the sense that the man in black's power his magical power, Martin the sorcerer, comes directly from the tower. Right. And because his power comes from the tower, Roland knows that he is a necessary piece in his quest to get there. And what is the ultimate prophecy that both the Oracle and the Man of Black say? Death, Roland, but not for you. Right, right. right. And he is going to bring He's the persistent of, one. Yep, lots of death, but it will not be him that dies. Right, right. The book tells us in the very beginning, Roland's going to complete his quest. Roland is not going to die. Right. We know that we now know that. Right. because we've had two different magical sources confirm it. And that we needed to know as the audience, that King needed to write, and that Roland was willing to do anything to get to. Right. And it also brings up the idea that it's interesting how the man in black has so much knowledge. He is able to describe how atoms work and mm-hmm. subatomic particles work to right. Roland. Right? <laughs> right. So the man in black is clearly the smarter of the two, oh, the he more is the knowledgeable of yeah, the two. Absolutely. Definitely. And he has this amazing ability to just conjure rabbits and cigarettes right, when he needs right, to. Right. Like, that Roland absolutely does not trust. No, at all. <laughs> no, no. It's like, not I'm not a down with this sorcery. Yeah. Until he gives him a cigarette. Then he's like, then he's like, okay. Uh, addiction. <laughs> it's one. I mean, that's the common theme with Roland. He will give in to addiction. Absolutely. For sure. He is addicted to cigarettes. He's addicted to the tower. And he's addicted to his guns. Absolutely. But that's why I think it's great. Like, is that question? I mean, is are they more important? Are the guns more important? Right. Or are they? Mm. And I think we are also seeing what it means to be defined as a warrior without a nation to defend. Mm. And Roland is very much that. So he's someone who, like when we when we get the glimpses into his past, for starters, he. Court is a child abuser. For sure. Yeah, like absolutely horribly beats absolutely. these boys. He's emotionally manipulative. Uh, totally. Like, yeah. like, so Roland's upbringing was fucked up. Yeah, man. Super fucked up. It was so uncool. Anytime he got a question wrong, he got smacked. So he got taught, like, okay, well, I'd rather not answer right. than get smacked. And he had to he had to train a bird to kill, not kill, but seriously injure. <laughs> His tr- his teacher, a, f- a fucking hawk named David, a hawk named David. Like that is a, just a perverse and very awful way for, sure. for, for a rite of passage for a gunslinger. So the question is like, Hey, why can't he feel, well, we know 
It was literally beaten beat out, out of him. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not able to uh, be emotional because emotions are weak. And he was taught that when you are weak, you get punished with pain. It reminds me a lot of the Spartans. It really does. Actually. Of, you know, of the, of the, of the trials and tribulations of those children turned warriors and killers immediately. You know, yep. if you were in a family that was in a certain line, right? Correct. If you were a rich family, I mean, you, you, that was it. You were in, you, you, you had no choice yeah. in so, the matter. And he had no choice in the matter. His father yeah. was, a, was a famous gunslinger. His father was close to practically ruling the order of gunslingers. And, and yet they talk about, in the beginning of the book, his father being very like frail and small and like rolling, towering over him. And Sorry, that was a little tangent. But no, it's just, no it's worries. Just, Stephen DeShane changes a lot in this book. It's really, it's really interesting. Yeah. But he, you know... At, at this point, being the last gunslinger, you know, we talk a lot about how Roland has this duty. You know, it's beat into him from court at, a, at an early age. He does. He he remembers all of his killings. He remembers every, almost everything, every person he's chosen to kill. He keeps that in a memory bank. And that's also pretty fucked up, if you yep. ask me. Yep. It's totally fucked up. Yeah. And it's totally dark. And, uh, man, God... Such a great book. It's it is an awesome book. It really is. So you mentioned the Spartans. There are there's another major callback to ancient Greece in this, in that they, there's this oracle. The oracle, right, right? And oracles are part of the ancient world, and they were very popular in ancient Greece and then in ancient Rome. And the most famous oracle was the Oracle of Delphi mm-hmm. in ancient Greece, where people would go and they would see a priestess known as the the Phygia. And the Phygia would be able to interpret the will of Apollo, the god of prophecy. And people would go and they would pay enormous sons of money. They would kill an animal and then they would hear the prophecies and they would do this so that they could see, get a glimpse of what the gods had planned. Mm. I think it's interesting that we have this oracle character, which is also quite demonic. The oracle hungers on and feeds on sexual energy. Yep. And it must, in, in order for it to tell prophecies, it needs sex. It's, and it's hungry for it, especially and, with Roland. And it's lethal. Yeah. You yeah. know, so the first, like, that when we first see the Oracle, Jake is the first one entrapped on it. And Roland is fearful that it might kill Jake mm-hmm. with its, you know, Oracle sexual craziness. Right. I don't know what, <laughs> how else to say it. So I love that we have the Oracle as a representation of ancient Greece. We have the line of Arthur Eld as a representation of medieval England. And we have this like incredible wealth of storytelling that King is paying homage to by introducing these elements into his story. And it's also to me linking it with our society in that this world is not all that different from our own. In fact, when I was reading it, there was a part of me that thinks, what if this is our world? After the nuclear war, mm. you know, like, like how different would it be? You know, sure. So maybe these oracles and the sorcery are just technologies that we don't understand um, that have run amok. You know, like this could potentially be our world in a future timeline. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated those little peppering in those details that he does, which he'll continue to do throughout the entire series. Well, and also there's a quite a bit of, of Western religion that, that happens in the book too. I mean, they talk about the man Jesus uh, and you have the woman, I, I'm trying to find her name and, and I can't 
Sylvia Pittston. Right? Yeah, there he right? is. So, so she is this woman who is a preacher of God uh, in Tull, just to take it back to Tull, because it reminds me of the Oracle. She was sort of the first piece of, um, you know, of prophecy that we get in the book. And she goes back and, and she, she warns the, the town of Tull of the interloper, of the person, you know, the, the demon that comes into the town is the interloper, uh, who it, it's, it's, you know, very, uh, it's placed on Roland pretty quickly, you know, and that's when this woman, there, there's a piece in the book that's, that I talked a little bit earlier about how King leaves it up to the reader to decide what happens. And there's a pretty uncomfortable piece in the book where Roland, uh, it's presumed that this woman, Sylvia, has been impregnated by the man in black and is carrying the man in black's child. And it's, it, it, it's assumed that Roland is going, in, at least in my mind, to, to, to abort that child, to kill that child. And there's a piece where the, the gunslinger literally... I'm sorry, this is such an uncomfortable piece to talk about. But I know, it's, right? it's part of the book. Especially two straight white men. I know, yeah. and, and it's, it's good that we, you know, and, and I also, I want to talk, you know, this, this book series is incredibly masculine, which is probably why you and I are talking about it and not you and Laurel. So for all intents and purposes, Roland takes one of his guns, he places it into the vagina of Sylvia Pittston, and then we, we don't know what happens. King moves on. So... Do you, what do you think? What, what do you think happens? So when I first encountered that scene, A, it was incredibly uncomfortable. It's wildly uncomfortable. And uh, King is many great things, but he is not a feminist. No. And he clearly isn't no. in this series. Uh, and I'm not trying to attack him, but it's just a fact. It, it, no. It, this is a book from the male gaze for the male gaze. Right. It's also not the only book where he's very short-sighted on on. On women, right, and that is that is one of the themes throughout the series where that that I, as a contemporary post Me Too adult who's married to uh, the, the most beautiful woman in the world, that I pick up on that I probably wouldn't know if I was a teenager even have noticed. So my first time encountering that scene, I read it that he aborts the baby. I did as well. Th- that's what I thought was happening. That he goes in, he knows that the baby is part of the man in black and he intentionally somehow kills it reading it the second time. I'm not sure hmm. because he says at the end of it, there was no baby. Now it, it, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but it makes it sound like what he really did was just check to see if she was pregnant and somehow his pistol sure. di- didn't turn blue at the tip of it. Like, sure. <laughs> like a pregnancy test, you know? So my second time reading it, I'm not sure. What I think is is significant, other than the lack of tact and uh, mm. grace that he has towards women, um, well, I think what is significant is that this is clearly a trap and clearly a, a scathing rebuke of organized religion, mm-hmm. I think is happening in these scenes. That Certainly. She, she came to the town as an outsider, Sylvia did, she and did. she was preaching dogmatic you know, adherence to religion and she was doing it for her own benefit. And when she actually encountered the real interloper, who is the man in black, Mm. who is actually evil, what does she do? She takes him in. She allows this evil to corrupt her Mm -hmm. and potentially bring, brings more evil. And so I don't think he, I think my second reading, I don't think there is an abortion there, 
But mm-hmm. the whole thing is an abortion of, of religion, in Absolutely. my view. Absolutely. You know? And it, it's, it's King saying, watch out for these people that are vociferously saying that they know the word of God and telling you what to think and feel and telling you how to do it, that those people are not to be trusted because mm-hmm. they might be preaching about the devil while actually sleeping with the closest thing to the devil in this world, which mm-hmm. is the man in black. And I, I, you know, I brought Sylvia up because she reminds me of the article. They, they talk a lot about her dogmatic sexual appeal uh, because even Roland at one point in time is as she's preaching is, is lured in. And there's a scene in the book where, where the men and women that are, are, you know, in council with her basically are, they're just entranced. I mean, they're like salivating, you know, this, this gets them off. And so it's interesting how later on when Roland gets to the Oracle and, and sacrifices his body and himself, to the article, uh, there's just like the, the, I saw a correlation between the two of them. There is. It, I think it is a, a interplay on I think the 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 psycho analysis, the id of the story. It's not really religion. It's sex. It's not really uh, divine prophecy. It's sex. It's it's wanting to get off. It's really being attracted to this woman that drives the men to her. And not really out of reverence or piety. In mm, fact, there is right. no piety. And then right. when you see the actual thing that can tell the future, what does it feed on? It feeds on sexual energy. Right. The time itself is down in the profane mud, right. right? Prophecy is profane. It's not something to be revered and worshipped in this world. No. I think is what we're we're playing with and what we're seeing there. There's not much to worship or revere in this world, actually. And I think that's a direct comment if we go back to the post-apocalyptic theme yep. which i think is right on right that's, that's why i brought up amico earlier i have to say <laughs> i was so excited to bring up the amico reference just because there are a lot of things that happen in this book that where our dimension gets referenced you know because we were a part of of old world and not mid world where roland's from and now we're in in world there's all these worlds and all these dimensions. And I, I was just really excited to talk about Amico. It's pretty so, awesome. so for everybody, I don't know if, you've, if anybody who's read the book or, or not, Roland sees this giant tank that just says Amico on it and just harkens back. It's like a little chuckle to look at our world. You know, this was obviously we were a part of this dimension at one point in time. Right. Absolutely. You know? So uh, we, I think we've had a really good first discussion do you have any final thoughts? What do you uh, think? No, I'm I'm excited. I, I I'm very excited to read the drawing of the three again. Uh because I knowing what I know the first time around, about to meet certain characters that we're going to meet gets me incredibly excited. But up until this point, you know, I I at first really jumped onto the Roland train at first. And this the second time around. I found myself agreeing with the man in black and that palaver a little bit more in the end that he was, you know, and, and realizing that maybe Roland is just a cog in this wheel, but maybe then again, that's the point to go back and reread it. Um, so no, I'm excited to, to jump into the next one. Thank you for, uh, for allowing me to do this, by the way, this first one, this was a lot of fun. This is really great. Same, same. This was awesome. I'm so excited to do more. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm very committed to completing this project. 
Um, so far, we're thinking, Midnight Myth listeners, a book, a pod. But some of the books get really, really lengthy. Yeah. So maybe there might be well, you know, more episodes for some of the, the heavier ones, like Wizard and Glass and Wolves of the Collar sure, sure. are really big tomes. And the set, the, the, the last one is, is huge. One breakdown. So, so maybe it makes sense to break them down. But what we would really like to hear, fellow Dark Tower fans, mm. we'd like to hear from you. Is there anything that you want us to talk about specifically? Yeah, please. If you want us to come back to something in book one, we can certainly revisit it and tell us what you think. So there's several ways that you can reach us. Our website is www.midnightmyth.com. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. Um, You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. Please, 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 if you like it, give us a rating or Mm -hmm. review because that really helps us get out there. And uh, long days and pleasant nights. Long days and pleasant nights. 